Hello to those listening, and welcome to our podcast on Modeling Minorities. We are Asian American women, friends who met in college, and daughters of immigrants. These are the conversations we're having, or wish we were having, with our husbands, friends, families, and coworkers. Hi, everyone. Well, today we're covering a topic that we haven't really talked about before, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. If you think about it, we're like working all day, so I love that we got to cover this. So Jess, we have a very special guest. Do you want to introduce him? Sure. So this week, we're so excited to be joined by Fabian. Uh, Fabian is a friend through Travis, uh, my husband, and he works in the music industry. And we want to get his thoughts on how diversity, equity, and inclusion plays a role in his work, in how he sees the future of the music industry, and his advice for how we can make it a more diverse and inclusive space. I remember the first story Travis told me about you was how you guys were hiking in the woods and it was like some remote place and you guys crossed paths with some other hikers and those people were like, oh, hey, Fabian. And they were just like, what in this random hiking trail? Even there, you were (laughs) running into people you knew. He was like, Fabian is the most well-known person, um, the most well-known and well-liked. And it's, it's clear to see why, because you're awesome. Well, thank you. Uh, I think you're both awesome too. Yeah, that that actually has happened to me more than once. Um, I can I can recall <laughs> it, it happened at Zion National Park. It happened at Pictured Rocks in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Um, it's happened in the streets of Chicago. Um, it's it's bizarre. I don't attribute it to uh, any level of popularity that I have. I think it, it's just a magical coincidence that just continues to happen. That's awesome. And so can you tell us a little bit about yourself? And given that this is a show about race and identity, we'd love to hear about how you self-identify. Sure. Yeah. I am a a first-generation Arab American. My parents were both born in Iraq and moved here separate from one another in the 1970s. I was born in 81, born and raised in Detroit. My family is an ethnic minority in Iraq known as Chaldeans. It follows the Roman Catholic Church. So the Pope is the head of the Chaldean Church as it is any other Catholic Church. They have their own language. It's a, it's a form of Aramaic, but also speak the national language of Iraq, which is Arabic. So I was raised in a household where my grandmother always lived with us. She spoke Arabic. She didn't speak the, the Aramaic language. So I learned Arabic early on. And can you share a little bit more about how your family came to be in Detroit? Um, yeah, there was already an established Chaldean population here in Detroit. I, I think the first wave of people moving here was around the, the auto industry and people wanted to get you know a job at Ford where they were well-paying middle-class jobs and it was, it was uh, easier to get in. So once that population was here, immigration sort of tightened up for a number of decades But because there was a population established here and a church established here, when immigration laws lightened up a little bit in the 1960s and and 70s, my family was able to move here through sponsorship programs from other immediate family members. My dad moved here in 1973 and my mother moved here in 1978. They weren't married until they both lived here. So did they know each other before they moved? They did through 
extended family. It's kind of like one big family, actually. Yeah. And what's also really interesting is that Detroit is actually, and correct me if I'm wrong, Detroit is the home of the second largest population of Chaldeans after Iraq. No, no, we are home to the largest population of Chaldeans, even more than Iraq. There, there were two big waves of migration that happened, one in the early 1900s, and then again in the, in the 70s and beyond, once immigration laws started to loosen up a little bit. So when my family came here, it was in the 70s, and it was after a certain act had passed in government where, um, where you can sponsor relatives. I think chain migration is how it's been phrased lately, but that's that's how they got here. But due to years of you know religious persecution and cultural persecution, uh, a lot had to leave uh, either as immigrants or as refugees or asylees. Uh, so yeah, the, I think the population in Michigan at this point is is well over a hundred thousand, maybe one hundred fifty thousand people, and and in Iraq there's maybe between ten and fifteen thousand Chaldeans left. Wow. I, I was going to say, just as far as Arabs, um, we have the largest population outside of the Middle East uh, in the metro Detroit area. And that includes all, you know, not just Iraqis, but people from Lebanon, people from Yemen, people from all over the all over the region. That is so interesting. I had no idea. And it's really interesting to hear that that is the religious minority where your family is from. A lot of times we hear about Catholicism or Christianity being the dominant religions in certain countries. Right. Iraq is, I believe, 97% Muslim, so very heavy in the minority. There are other Christian populations in the Middle East. I know Lebanon has a Christian population. I know that there are Christian Palestinians. So it's not uncommon. It's just a religious minority. And, you know, it's even more interesting when I self-reflect on how that is one of the main identifiers of my own culture, yet I'm not a religious person. So I'm, I'm sort of forsaking one of the biggest identifiers of my people. I know you you and I have talked about it, but for our listeners, what, what box do you check? <laughs> that, what box do I check? That's a great question because there is no Arab American box. I know that there's a, a bit of a debate as to if Arab American is an ethnicity, if you look at the census, we're not represented there. Like I'm considered white by the American government. So there's there's no official representation that way, but I'm not considered white by, you know, the by society standards. When I applied to college, I wasn't represented there. When I do surveys for focus groups, I, I typically will check the other box and manually type in how I feel like I should be represented because I don't feel comfortable checking the white box. I've gone through enough experiences in my life to know that race is a social construct that is typically constructed by the race on top, so to speak. I've not always felt embraced by white people to think that I can also say, hey, I'm white too. It just doesn't mesh with my culture. It doesn't mesh with how I've seen myself and what makes me and my family and, and my culture unique. We actually heard something a bit similar when we talked to our friend Nassim, and her family is Iranian. And she had mentioned that a lot of times people identify her for her, meaning she doesn't really get a chance to self-identify because people will categorize her however they want, and it might depend on current world events. 
right? Like a good example of being after 9-11, maybe certain people didn't feel safe and then other groups are targeted. So it's interesting how a lot of times that is not within our own control. And I think right now for me in particular, I definitely feel that way. Um, So Fabian, when Jess and I were first brainstorming about the show, her husband, Travis, your friend, Travis, actually suggested we talk to you because you're in the music industry. Is that right? That's right. For the last uh, decade or so, I've been specifically in in music for ads. So I've worked as a a music supervisor, which is creatively searching and licensing music for commercials, but also as a a producer and, and a strategist. So I've worked for companies that also create music, uh, custom music for ads, and a little bit of film and TV work, but predominantly advertising. I was talking to one of my neighbors, actually, who works in the rock industry. And he Mm. was talking about how, like, how they're trying to be more inclusive and diverse. But he's like, but how do you do that when rock is mostly white? Can you talk about the dynamics of what the music industry is like nowadays? So I kind of straddle my career between uh, music and advertising because I've, I've worked at advertising agencies. I've serviced agencies on the vendor side. And what I noticed, you know, I can give you a little anecdote. Like my, my very first day at the agency where I was working when I started my career, there was a fire alarm and, and all of us had to go outside. It was within the first hour of me being there. And I started looking around and it was, a, it was stark white. You know, I had come from retail and production and the food industry. I, I had done all sorts of jobs before settling into my career. And I just, I couldn't believe the the racial makeup of the place where I was working. I definitely felt a bit like an outsider, even if I hadn't been treated like one yet. It just, it felt not super diverse. Um, and, you know, the music industry is super complicated and sprawled and, and that's, you know, its own conversation. But but I, I've noticed that a lot of the, a lot of the leadership does tend to be white or not representative of all of the cultures or all of the artists that are, you know, represented by their rosters. Or even the the audience, right? The listeners. Um, right. I'm curious, like, what peaked or what cued you into noticing that? Because frankly, like, Travis did not notice how white Michigan was until he brought me there. Mm-hmm. Like, he became so conscious of the fact that, like, all the restaurants we were in and the supermarket we were in, like... I think he was concerned about how I felt. And so I'm wondering, like, were you always kind of clued into it because of how you were brought up? So, you know, did you feel other from a young age? Like, what exposure did you have that made you notice? Well, I think I noticed, um, you know, the first few years of my life, we lived within the city limits of Detroit, which is and has been for the majority of my life has been a majority black city. So anytime I'm at a place somewhere around here where there aren't a lot of black people, it's, it's something that I notice because the population is so strong here. When I went to elementary and middle school, I, I would say half of my school was black. There was uh, a number of, of Middle Eastern students and then very few white students. And then when I moved uh, to another city before eighth grade, that's when I was in, I guess, majority white school. Um, it was still relatively diverse, and and the white population itself was at my high school was fifty uh, percent Jewish, so 
I've always felt like I've been around a, a fair amount of diversity no matter where I've gone. I, I stayed in Michigan for college. I went to Michigan State um, and then moved back home afterwards. And it was, it was mostly the, the jobs that I worked before where I felt like there was a little bit of everything at any of those jobs. But feeling like I was an other or an only one in a crowd probably comes from early in my affinity towards music. Um, I, I started going to see bands play when I was at a, uh, when I was really young. I think I, my first concert was when I was 11. And then I started going regularly when I was 13 or 14. And because, you know, my first love was punk rock, I was in predominantly white spaces for a good amount of that time. It wasn't until I started going to hip hop shows and seeing other music that I felt like the crowds got a little bit more diverse. And when you're at that age, you don't feel like you're an other or you don't feel like an outsider because you feel like you found your community in a way, right? Like to me, kids who liked punk rock were my community because we were the outsiders of our respective high schools. And then we all found this thing that was a communal joy for us. And, and we would go to shows and we would hang out at the same places and, and, and it felt like a community. But once you start getting a bit of an awareness of how others see you, that's when those feelings of otherness sort of settle in. Um, Fabian, when you started to notice that you were an only, can you explain a little bit more about what you mean? Is it that you looked around the room and everybody looked really white or, or what do you mean by that? Uh, that's pretty much what I mean. Yeah. It was predominantly white crowds. I, I knew that I was a bit of uh, an outsider, even within my own community, which is why I felt like punk rock was this sort of safe haven for me when I was 14 years old, because, you know, like, my my peers would say, why do you listen to white boy music? You know, <laughs> that was... So what, what were they listening to? They were mostly listening to hip hop. It was a lot of top 40 hip hop and R&B. It was the 90s. Um, I don't know too many Chaldeans back then that wouldn't say Tupac was their favorite rapper. So that was, that was what they like. And that didn't mean that I didn't like Tupac. It's just, you know, I wanted to play guitar and I wanted to, and I was listening to the alternative rock station and going to independent record stores and, and buying CDs by bands that a lot of my friends hadn't heard of back then. You know, when you were saying that you really liked punk, my husband, Chad, loves punk. He also really loved, um, I, I like to classify it as angry music, but like metal. But it's, it's interesting because there's a certain persona, like we stereotype things, right? And that's how our brain kind of sometimes make sense of things like you stereotype to be like, oh, this is what I think of this group. And so when I think about punk, I do see it as very white, even though I don't know that I had consciously thought of it until you said it. And so I wonder, you did you did you like the music or did it represent something that you were trying to tap into? I like the music, but I also feel like there was something to the the angst, the you know, the emotions being expressed in that music in a time where you're trying to figure out who you are and, and what you are. You know, it, life is very confusing when you're 13, 14, 15 years old. Um, it's confusing when you're 39 years old, but uh, it's very confusing when you're a teenager. And I feel like those topics were pretty prevalent in that genre um, in a way that was easily digestible. But I just, I liked, I liked the sound of it. I liked the aesthetic of it. I, you know, when I learned to play guitar, 
the, those were the songs that I wanted to learn how to play. Um, so that's, that's kind of the start. And my musical evolution is pretty broad, but that was certainly a time and place for me and, and a coming of age moment where it really resonated. And I think a lot about that time and, and how it represents who I am today and some of the beliefs that I have. Did you feel like punk was distinctly American in some way? No, not really, because, I, you know, a lot of the bands, I'm also a bit of a historian when it comes to music, so I always like to go backwards. So if my, if my starting point with that genre was Green Day, you start to go backwards and, and wonder who inspired them and who inspired those bands and who inspired those bands. And then you go all the way and then you do your research and you do your history and it, and it goes back to, oh, well, there's the Ramones from New York and there's the Sex Pistols and the Clash from the UK and, and there were all these you know, other bands from the late 70s, I would, you know, say that the UK bands really spoke to me because it felt like they had cornered the the aesthetic. You know, there was there was the fashion attached to it that I think was really driven by those UK bands, the the more aggressive looking, you know, the spikes and and I would go back to that and and not necessarily like the Ramones look that wasn't as like fashionable to me. I mean, it definitely had its place, but, um, but no, I don't think it was like distinctly American, but I think a lot of the bands that I listened to in the nineties, you know, were American for the most part, aside from like the occasional, like, Oh, this, this, you know, record label has this amazing skate punk band from Japan. Um, and then when they would come tour the States, you know, you would go see them and you'd be like, that band is awesome. But yeah, what, I, I don't know that I ever thought of it like that. I, ne- I never thought of it as like a distinctly American thing. So interesting. And so now that you are in the industry, now that you have a voice in the industry, um, how are you, you know, other than your outside of your day to day, you know, obviously you have clients, obviously you have um, briefs that you need to respond to, but how are you infusing this lens that you have into your your professional work and do you feel like there's a place for it or do you feel like a responsibility for it yeah i think there has to be a place for it there were times where this topic of representation wasn't as top of mind for everybody you know just because i recognized that my office was predominantly white didn't mean that anybody was openly discussing it on a weekly or monthly basis or addressing it in some way so my first stint when i was working within an an agency was between 2011 to 2014. And I remember at one point we won a pretty big retail client and we won it on a a music driven pitch, which I was very proud of. And then when we started to do the work, we learned, you know, I, I never really looked at what other people in, in advertising and marketing look at, like what's their target demographic? How do their customers behave? Those are, those are things that people in other departments looked at. I was just trying to understand what is the sound of this brand? What is, you know, what are you trying to convey with this, with this spot? And at one point I had learned that a big chunk of Hispanic um, customers, that 30% of their customer base was Hispanic. And when that came to creative questions about, well, how do we make the music that we put in these commercials sound a little bit Hispanic and looking around the entire creative team that was working on 
this brand and seeing not one Latinx person involved, that raised a flag for me. I felt we were doing that brand a huge disservice by not acknowledging that a third of their customers are Latinx and we don't have a single person on the creative team that's making these decisions that would speak to them. You know, and and that's not my background either. So there were times where I felt like I, I don't know the answer. Like I would try to seek out answers from other people within the industry that I was working. But, you know, even that wasn't as fully represented by a wide range of cultures, of ethnicities, of races. Do you feel like now with diversity, equity and inclusion being such a hot topic, the music industry is proactively trying to make the the hiring and the music and the artists they seek out more diverse? I think that there's an attempt. Yeah, I think that the music industry is is definitely trying to put their best foot forward there. If you remember the Blackout Tuesday movement from last summer, which was you know an extension of a, a wider social justice movement, but that was actually started by two Black women in the music industry, and it was specifically addressing the injustices and inequity within the music industry. It was very quickly hijacked into something else, uh, you know, a very performative thing on social media, but that was its original intent. Um, I, we mentioned this in a previous episode that that's exactly what I did and um, got called out for it. Well, I, I don't think that most people realize that, you know, hashtags have a function. It's not just like a punctuation mark on your social media posts. Like if you want to dig into a hashtag, if you click on it, then it populates information about that hashtag. So most people don't realize it. Um, So what ended up happening with that, because it was such a popular post, is that anybody that was looking at the Black Lives Matter hashtag didn't get to see any content related to Black Lives Matter. It just completely blacked out any information any news, any content on that subject. So that's how it sort of backfired. It wasn't that people, you know, did that on purpose or, or tried to snuff out that that messaging or that information. It, it's just what happened once people started using it in mass. Yeah, definitely. Don't Listen feel bad more. about it. No, I should. <laughs> I should feel bad about it because then I that's my way to correcting and being more aware and being more conscious of like, what, what was, what is this? You know, like taking the time to like look into it. I didn't know it was originating from the music industry. Yeah. The intent was to raise awareness that there is a lack of equity within the music industry, but because the the conversation was obscured, I, I think a lot of people lost sight of it. It just took on a life of its own. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think in some ways just shows how eager people were to support the cause. Like they wanted Mm -hmm. to show support, but it was just not informed what Blackout Tuesday was actually supposed to be for. Right. But because of Blackout Tuesday, there were a lot of companies looking inward and trying to figure out how they could be better stewards of that industry for everybody, and especially the Black community that felt underrepresented or taken advantage of or or overlooked. That really resonated with me, but it it also made me look at how things were going at agencies because uh, a little bit after that, I started freelancing at an agency again. And my first stint there didn't have a diversity, equity, and inclusion team. 
Uh, now there is somebody hired full time in that role, and I'm a part of that team. But I don't know that the results are there yet. It's great that the agency has acknowledged that this is important and are putting some money behind it, but I think the efforts are lagging a little bit. Um, and that's primarily what I've been trying to focus on outside of just my day-to-day work at the agency. So Fabian, I have to ask a pretty naive question, but why should the music industry be more diverse? Because you're not seeing the people when you hear their music, you're just listening to it and it could be coming through your ears and you never have to like actually see the artist. So what is the benefit to making your industry more inclusive and diverse? Um, It gives everybody the opportunity to actually participate in what we're doing. Otherwise, there are questions of appropriation. Like if somebody wanted the spot addressing Asian hate and the music brief was like, okay, we just want some Asian culture in this. To have an Asian composer work on it that understands the culture, understands the music of the region, understands what would be needed to accomplish that is very important. I feel like that that could be said across any culture and any spot, any commercial that's being worked on that's supposed to be speaking for a community. If you're not having a member of that community participate in that, then you're doing that community a disservice. On the other hand, you don't want to see a situation where the only time a Black composer gets a call is for the urban brief, whether that's a matter of opinion or or not. Like, I don't want to work in an industry that essentially locks an entire population out of opportunities unless it's oh, this is a Black story, find a Black composer to work on it. This is a Hispanic story, find a Latinx composer to work on it. You know, you're using, um, you know, Black music, you're using Black aesthetics, and you're not hiring Black creators. Or, you know, or if you're a record label, you have a roster full of Black talent, but you don't have Black people in leadership positions. It's obvious. It's not hard to to see those stats. It's not hard to acknowledge that there is inequity within the music industry and within advertising. So what are we doing to address it? Um, And it's nice to see that there are efforts being made to address it, but I'm not sure that we're doing it the right way. And, you know, it just, I, I feel like it just needs to be a much bigger conversation than it is right now. We're all fighting for an opportunity to succeed in an industry that has both explicit and implicit biases. And if we're not looking to address them, then it's going to continue to be the old boys club that we've seen in this industry and many other industries. That's so interesting. And so I kind of want to talk about, do you feel safe and supported to take on this initiative and to make this change, um, to be the one to say like, okay, yeah, we need more voices across the board. We need diversity across the board and not just for the specific briefs. Or do you feel like it's still, you're still squeaky wheel? It, it's, it's a little bit better now that there's an infrastructure for this initiative because there's a diversity, equity, and inclusion team that I can participate in, it's it's a lot different than just being the squeaky wheel. 
you have the support of your leadership within that department. You have a team that's also invested in addressing this issue. There's some progress. I don't feel as alone in it. I don't feel like it's unsafe for me to, to speak my mind. I don't feel like I'm putting my, my job in, in jeopardy by doing so, but I, I do feel like there's still a lot more work to do. Like one issue that I've seen within the agency where I work is um, I'm technically an extension of the production team. So producers, the ones that sort of like wrangle the projects, contact the vendors, all of that stuff. And I'm, but I'm not a producer. I'm a music producer. So I only focus on one element of what we're doing. There's not one broadcast producer that's on the diversity team. So when it comes to hiring a director, um, hiring a post-production company, hiring a music company, that isn't top of mind for them. It might be a blind spot for them. A lot of what you're talking about is allyship, right? Like just seeing another person of color or someone who might be a minority in some way in the room. It sounds like that also empowers you to speak up for others. So on that note, could you share some tips or tricks or advice for people who might be wanting to speak up on behalf of others and just finding it hard to do so in the workplace? Like what would you advise them to do? That's a really tough one because you don't always get to put your values forward like that. There, there are other issues, right? I, I would say if there is a diversity team, you know, participate in that and make sure that every department within your company, if we're talking about a big company, is represented. If you're working for a smaller company or doing things for yourself, just keeping that in mind, making sure that you're not excluding anybody or that your own implicit biases aren't getting in the way of hiring decisions, whether it's your own staff or contractors or freelancers, when you're in the position to make those decisions, just be mindful of it. But there, there are situations, Terry, where like you're on a client call and somebody says something sexist. The client does. And, you know, is it on you as somebody who's not in a leadership position at you know, your place of work to call somebody out on that call and, and potentially make it a... a really uncomfortable situation for everybody involved? Or do you figure out another way to address it and hope that leadership has your back when you say that that was unacceptable? Or when somebody on your own team says something that they probably didn't even think was that egregious or that racist, but you know that if, you know, like if somebody makes like an offhanded remark about somebody from a Hispanic background that's supposedly harmless in their mind, you wonder to yourself, like, if we had a if we had a Latinx producer on this call right now, would you have said that? And I don't think the answer would be yes. I think that they would have thought twice about that, which is, you know, yet another reason why I think diversity in the workplace is super important. Um, that's exciting, though, because now now that you're your own employer, more or less, like, it must be kind of cool to be able to, like, call those shots in a way. Yeah, it's it's been great so far. It's only been uh, a handful of months that we've been in this position, but I have a business partner and, and every time we're in the position to hire freelancers, we acknowledge that we want to have a diverse range of freelancers and not just for the sake of doing it. Like it's really made our work feel more rich and we're going to keep doing it. I think that if other people also tried to do the same thing, they, they would find success in doing so. 
They would broaden their networks. They would have completely different voices that they wouldn't have considered before that could actually bring something really special to the table. That's so cool. And just to elaborate on the richness that you spoke about, what does that mean? Are you bringing freelancers together or like, how are you seeing the diversity of sound? Well, every job is different. Um, Mm -hmm. But just in general, if if we're in the position to hire multiple people, then we want to make sure that multiple voices are represented. The richness to me comes from reaching out to composers that don't get very many opportunities because they're not as tapped into the network of, you know, commercial music. Um, Being in Detroit, there's no shortage of incredible Black talent here. So being able to partner with other composers or even subcontract another company to participate in the project that we're working on gives us a bigger range of options that wouldn't be there if we just hired the same batch of freelancers that everybody else hires, the same people that are tapped into the network, the same people that are completely connected because of they've been around or, or they're a known commodity or their parents were in this industry or, or what have you. That's, I think that has been the biggest lessons that, I, that I've learned from doing this is when you get different voices, when you get people from different backgrounds, you're going to get an approach that you might not have considered and it might be uh, the best one. That's awesome. I love that. Well, Fabian, I guess one of the final questions that I would have for you is in some ways, when one is a minority, it's almost like our superpower becomes that we see a lot of things that others don't. And it's very clear that you're so thoughtful and that you try to speak up for others. And when you see that something is wrong, you try to make it right. So I guess I'm wondering, how can how can we help educate others? And how can we help those, especially those who are the dominant or majority group who don't have the superpowers simply because maybe their lives are not so fraught, or they don't have this tension that some of us have to live with? Like, how can we just help educate them? That is such a good and difficult question that I don't think I have the answer to. (laughs) Gotta Um, just get you with those difficult questions. I think part of it is, is, you know, just making sure that that conversation continues to happen. We shouldn't only be talking about Black history during Black History Month or, or, you know, LGBTQ history during Pride Month or, you know, having an awareness when there's some sort of like uh, calendar reminder to do so. I think that having these conversations often is super important. So I think that's the biggest thing for me is the more that we ignore it, the more that we don't think about it, then the less will be done about it. And I don't want to paint myself as any sort of expert or activist or anything like that. I'm just trying to go about my my day to day and and make sure that I'm doing the best work that I can and being, you know, thoughtful about the the people that I'm working with and and making sure that making sure that it's the best work but it's also the most inclusive work, knowing that the work that we're doing is not super inclusive all the time. So that's the big thing for me is is just continuing to have the conversation. Maybe I have a sensitivity to it because I don't necessarily see myself in the media. I don't necessarily see myself in my profession. I don't know if it's because there aren't as many Arab Americans as there are Asian Americans or Black Americans or, or you know other minority groups that are better represented, but at least it gives me a sensitivity to the fact that like if I don't see myself and they don't see themselves, we're really missing something. So let's do our best to make sure that that you know we can represent ourselves as often as possible. That was a fantastic answer to a really difficult question. (laughs) 
thank you for for taking the challenge. It wasn't easy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. But thank you for asking it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening. This is really meant to be a conversation, and we'd love to hear from you. Email us at hello at unmodelingminorities.com. Unmodeling Minorities will be released every Thursday. Hope you join us next time.